Welcome to the Lorehounds One Shots, where the Lorehounds your guides to the murderous wastelands of the Upper Midwest. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our coverage of the episodes one through four of season five of Fargo by FX on Hulu. In this podcast, we're going to discuss our spoiler-free hot takes on the season so far, our overall relationships with the Fargo franchise, and then, after a quick break, we'll get into spoilers and discuss some of the main characters and key themes and plot points for the season. Be sure to stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about our podcasting schedule for the rest of the year. Oh, it's crazy that you're saying the rest of the year. Mind we're almost there. For early access to ad-free episodes and exclusive content, visit us at patreon.com slash the lorehounds for as little as three bucks a month. You get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, as well as a bunch of other exclusive cool stuff. Also, consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews help other folks find us in the various counties of North Dakota and Minnesota. <laughs> it's, I, I have not done a geographical breakdown for this show, but uh, I, hopefully it's cohesive. We're probably going to do at least one more podcast on Fargo to wrap up the season. So if you want to send in your thoughts and reactions, send emails to lorehounds at thelorehounds.com. Or head to our website and either use the voicemail feature or the contact form. You can also post a message on our Discord server, and we can include those as well. Links will be in the show notes. Okay, John, uh, Fargo is firing on a lot of cylinders this season, and I thought that we might touch base on what our backgrounds are with the Fargo franchise in general, and maybe Noah Hawley in specific. He's the writer and the showrunner. So I believe you've not seen any Fargo prior to this, maybe the movie. Let, let me tell you my exposure to Fargo. It's There was this YouTuber in the early 2000s named Brandon Hardesty, mm-hmm. and he made dumb comedy videos, and sometimes they would be reenactments. And I saw a couple scenes reenacted by him alone, like he would wear different costumes oh, goodness. and go between the parts. That is my exposure to okay. Fargo. <laughs> no, That's not it. even the movie. Not even the movie. Oh, wow. I, 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 I had assumed that you would have seen the movie. Okay. No. No, I didn't even know if it was a Coen Brothers movie until... I went on Google. That would be a fun film festival at Coen yeah. Brothers. I, I like the Coen Brothers a lot. So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll do that. Okay. So without getting into your spoiler hot takes though, but where, where are you up to now? What have you, you've just done. I've just done the episodes. I've just okay. done this season. I've, uh, you told me to remain virgin eyed and I have. <laughs> so that the Holy spirit may descend upon you. Uh, uh, and I think you mentioned the other day too that your spouse has gotten roped into it as well. She was hesitant because she doesn't usually watch drama. She likes to watch a little bit lighthearted stuff. But I I put it on and she was like, oh oh, like it, 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 there's so many moments that you expect to go one way based on mm. what you've seen, mm-hmm. and they just go in a completely different direction, and it gets you going. Huh? What's going to happen next? That's great. That's uh, I think that's a strength for the show uh, overall yeah. in general that, you know, new people can come in and just, you know, be right. in it. So, well, I had seen the movie when it first came out and absolutely loved it. It's, you know, a, a cornerstone of Coen Brothers, um, uh, you know, of their filmography and, and the work that they did. And it's it had a very distinct vibe and and feeling to it. It's it's certainly identifiable, I think, as a Coen Brothers movie. Okay. And then after a, quite a while, Noah Hawley picked it up and he got the Coen Brothers okay to make a season of television based off of it. And when that came out, I was like, huh. So I checked it out. And I kind of bounced off it because season one, certainly episode one, I was like, well, this is just a televised version of the movie. And so I just kind of stayed away from the property altogether. Now, I knew, you know, our our friends over in the Bald Move community, it's a big show with a lot of the the fans over there and, and a lot of other TV podcasts as well. So it had always been sort of something I kept my awareness of. And then during the pandemic, season four came out. So I did a watch of that and I liked it. And then I ended up doing a full rewatch of seasons one, two, and three to get fully caught up into the the world of it. 
Um, nice. And we we can talk about. I should say. Well, let me say this. There's often conversation among Fargo fans about what, which is your favorite. How do you rank the seasons? And so, officially, my order is season two, season one, season three. And I put season four off to the side because it's so very different from everything else, even season five. I'm sorry, season four I put off to the side. Um, and because it's so different from one, two, three, and five. One, two, three, and five very much have that stamp of uh, Coen Brothers, Fargo, Minnesota Nice, uh-huh. and all these other questions that that it's working on. That's interesting. I thought I, you know, you asked me to listen to this interview, and um, with no, I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was saying this season he wanted to explore Minnesota Nice, so I didn't realize that that was sort of a staple of the, uh, yes. the property overall. Yes, it's a very important part of the the storyline. Like, what's underneath this niceness? What is this niceness? And then what's underneath it when right, you, when you right. peel it back? Season four happens in Kansas City, and it stars Chris Rock and. Um, Oh, I'm blanking his name, Jason Schwartzman, okay. and and a bunch of other uh, folks, obviously in it. And it's more of a. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Miller's Crossing, which is also a Coen Brothers movie. I it's have not. Bit, okay, it's a bit more of a gangsters '40s gangster style. And so, season four is very much into that world, and it deals with crime in America and uh, race relations, and you know just how criminal syndicates work and heirs to power you know, the kids of, of people. And it's, it's, it's almost medieval in, in many ways in terms of how these two different crime families are relating to each other. And it's a very, very different, uh, I, I would say it's not, it, it doesn't really belong within the Fargo family, even though it has the Fargo name. That's my personal take. And, and mm. a lot of people, it's usually ranked lower in the overall assessment because it is so different. And I, and I think that's the reason why, because it doesn't follow the same patterns. And when we get on the other side of the break and we get into spoilers, we'll, we can talk about some of the recurring themes and character types that okay. are very present in uh, the original Fargo movie and a lot of other Coen brothers movies, but uh, specifically within the other three seasons of, of this television show. Right. So, right. There, uh, I want to talk quickly too about Noah Hawley. I'm be, I've become a watcher, a devoted watcher of what he's doing and what he's saying. I'm not a devotee of him specifically, but I'm very interested whenever he has something to say or when he's he's producing different things. Uh, he's a writer, a showrunner, uh, um, and he's sort of a multi-talented person within in the creative space. He wrote an article in the New Yorker not long ago uh, about the whole mythology of good guys and bad guys. And then the podcast that I sent you, The Gray Area with Sean Illing, he interviews Noah Hawley. We'll put links to, of, to these resources in the show notes. Um, it's the, the podcast is uh, woven around this article that he wrote for The, the New Yorker, and which Noah Hawley is examining and, and challenging the the mythology of good guys and bad guys, and our our the mythology, the American mythology of the of the lone, you know, uh, uh, what do you want to say, uh, the man out in the wilderness taming the wilds and you know bringing order and justice and you know sort of all that uh, lone ranger type stuff. And he's trying to look at the world in in some different ways and challenge uh, challenging the the main narrative. Um, uh, orthodoxy, I guess you could say, how stories get told and what kinds of stories get told. So he's really trying to cut uh, across the grains of of what we're used to in our modern right. mythologies. And I don't know if you picked up on some of that in that interview. Yeah, I don't think he's the only one doing that. I think that there's there's since Game of Thrones, I think we've become, and he even name drops Game of Thrones in that interview. Yeah. Since Game of Thrones, we've been more comfortable with these gray area characters these mm-hmm. gray area luthin you know. yeah davos I, right i was just listening right. to the davos podcast we were just on with uh maester anthony over on his electric bookaloo and it just came out uh, the day before we're recording this oh well and i was I literally just listening to the podcast as i came came down to the microphone and uh yeah davos we we uh, on that podcast we talked very much about davos being a gray character so right right 
Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always fascinated to look at issues like this. It's one of the things that drew me to like the Wheel of Time, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. one of the things I know I've mentioned this probably on our last three podcasts because it's most of what I'm watching right now. But even in Doctor Who, like <laughs> I love that that show has a main character who's not wholly good. He has mm-hmm. his moments and he has mm-hmm. his issues. And I, I think it's really interesting to explore things like that. Can you right. can you root for someone? Can you follow someone who is not always doing the right thing? Which I think we see on display in this season so far. With uh, our main character, which you definitely know. even yeah. even the villains this season have mm-hmm. moments where you root for them, right? <laughs> yeah, with Old Munch, definitely. Yep, uh, mm-hmm. it's very interesting. So, um, a couple of other quick notes about Noah Hawley. He wrote a book called Anthem. I started to read it. I had to put it down because it deals with um, questions of youth culture and gun violence in our country right now. It was a compelling read, but it also just as a parent, I was just like, oh, I kind of can't deal with this right now. It's like I was in the wrong headspace, but it, it was really interesting. And Noah Hawley has uh, is in the works, and I think they're going to start principal photography in February of 2024 for a TV adaptation of the Ridley Scott Alien franchise. And it's going to be a prequel to the original movie. So prior to Ripley uh, and uh, and the whole thing. That's interesting. And that should be that. Hmm? Do we need that? (laughs) I don't know. I think I'm really interested to see Noah Hawley do some, you know, to to play in the science fiction space. Right. And I I guess we did have Bear McCreary telling us that the the Terminator prequel series on Hulu was like the best thing. Right. Right. Yeah, I guess I guess honestly, I I think that when I'm looking at new things to watch now, I'm more interested in who's telling what kind of story than I am what brand is attached to it. Sure. And that's if it were just Alien, hey, we're gonna do a prequel, an alien TV prequel, I'd be like, Okay, well, I'll see. I'll see. But because it's no Holly writing this. I am very interested to see. I like. I, I'm definitely going to be checking this out. That is for sure. Yeah. Uh, and and I want to see what Noah Hawley has to say because one of the things that Noah Hawley does is he layers in amongst the beautiful visuals and the wacky characters. He's layering in constantly social commentary and observation, and he's really holding up a mirror to uh, modern American culture. And I find that really interesting for a lot of reasons. And so for him to do something so not that I've seen of him do in genre fiction, I'm really interested to see where, where this goes. Cause he is a, he's, a, I think my opinion is, is that he is a, he may miss, he may swing and miss, but he's swinging and he's, he's really out there challenging the boundaries of, his own capabilities and what we can do in the narrative space around, you know, TV and, and movies and stuff like that. So he has my attention. And so if he goes there, I'm going to definitely be checking it out. It's, it's cool. I, it's, I just can't imagine like how, how is he going to make a, the, an alien TV prequel? Interesting. What is he going to be saying? Cause he's always saying something. So, right. He sure is always saying something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. John, uh, season, Four, five. We're in five. Sorry, my. We sure are. Yeah. Season five, episodes one through four. Spoiler-free hot takes. What do you got? I I'm really really into it. I you know I've I've never watched a Fargo before, like I said, and now I mm-hmm. am so far go on. <laughs> oh, down this rabbit hole. I I definitely want to go back and rewatch the seasons once I'm done with my current binge of other things. Excellent. Excellent. But um yeah, it's it's really great. I'm super- I think my advice, my advice on that just to segue quickly would be to do it in order and start with the movie and then go through the shows in sequence. Okay. That Even though sense. they're anthologies and they they stand to, you I think you really do have to go back to the source material, the primary source right. which is the the movie because that sets the tonality and introduces a lot of the main themes and the things that are playing out in these stories. And then I suppose you could watch, I don't know, you could watch the shows in any order. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I, I do think, yeah, I kind of think you should do it in order. I think you should do one, two, three, four. I think that would be logical. Anyway. Okay. Sounds good to me. Yeah. I'm definitely, this is on my list of things to just binge through. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that. I think um, I was delighted to see some of the cast here. I was, I, I had no idea we had, you know, Kile from, uh, <laughs> and her name's Dorothy in this, and I want to go, Dorothy. Right. But, uh, yeah, I, I, did, I had no idea she was in this, and then I went to you, oh, she's in this? And I didn't realize she was, like, the main character. Mm-hmm. But she's great in it. John Hamm is a great character. I'm not going to say what kind of character he is just yet. Um, but I, I can see layers of gray even in the heroes. All of the conversations, all the dialogue feels really authentic and feels really uncomfortable in a way that rings true of like mm-hmm. dealing with family that you don't necessarily get along with, things like mm-hmm. that. And really, I'm just very impressed by the quality of the writing, the quality of the acting. Uh, nothing has happened the way I think it would. Every episode, I'm like, what the hell just happened? And I, I can't wait to see where it goes next. I, I want to know the mysteries already. Right, right. How about you? I was a little bit hesitant going into episode one. And there were things that I that had me questioning the, the quality and the choices uh, for casting. And then as the season has progressed, and I'm 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 hooked with the Fargo franchise and Noah Hawley enough that I'm definitely going to go more than two or three episodes, right? I'm going to see what transpires because this, it, it really is an evolving, a show that evolves. Um, so I was like, okay, let me just check those things. And then now that we've gotten into it, and now that I understand more what's going on with the characters, there's actually creative choices for what and why certain things are happening that I thought were just bad uh, filmmaking. And so I was like, huh, that's really interesting. And then uh, I got to the end of episode three and I was totally on a cliffhanger because it ends it was such a cliffhanger moment. And I, I watched episode four the other day and I couldn't hold it in my brain. And I, I, I even watched episode three twice. There was so much going on visually with the characters, with the themes, with the the plot lines, with the social commentary that I, I think I could watch this season so far two or three different, two or three times and, and come away every time with some new appreciation for it, some new understanding of the characters and their motivations and, and also what Noah Hawley is saying about modern contemporary culture. It's so dense and layered that I think the first time I watched episode one and then going into two and three, I couldn't process it. It was, it was so rich and so nutritious that I was getting stuck on, on, on small nitpicky details as opposed to like really absorbing what this has. So I'm, I'm being entertained and I'm being uh, intellectually stimulated. So, and visually stimulated as well. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how this show evolves over the the course of the entire season. Yeah. um, I, I'm in some ways, I don't think it would have been practical for us to do proper full episode to episode coverage mm-hmm. because the research that I think you have to, that I would want to do on any given episode <laughs> would be like a four to one ratio. I'd be doing like yeah. four hours of research for one hour of podcasting, you know, let let alone multi watches. Yeah. I think if this were not intersecting with the holidays, we probably could have done it, but it's, yeah. it's like with the scheduling right now, it's just impossible for us to do the level that we'd want to do. Yeah. So exactly. here we are doing, so here we are a two shot. I guess not. A yeah, shot, something a like that. A two shot. <laughs> if there's such a thing, it doesn't matter. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. So I think, yeah, I think definitely after, because this is running over the sea, over the holiday season. So I think at least, yeah. I mean, I, I can't see that as doing one prior to it being finished. Uh, but certainly when we're done, I, I, I feel strongly that we should come back to this. I agree. I would definitely like to talk about how the hell this resolves. Is this eight or 10 episodes? <laughs> it's 10. Okay. 
All right, yeah. so we got time. Yeah. Alrighty. Cool. Well, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will get into the uh, details of the show. Uh, full spoilers. Sounds good. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And we are back. Okay, John, let's start talking about the show in detail. Uh, spoiler warning, you know, if you haven't seen the episodes yet or you don't care, um, this is your chance to jump out. Before we start, I, I before we get into the details, um, there's a couple of things that we can do. Since we're not doing an episode-by-episode episode recap, I put some notes in around the production and how the story is being told. Okay. Some notes in around the characters, and we could maybe do some, you know, um, wandering through and having some conversations about the different actors and the roles that they play. But then I think it's also important to really talk about some of the recurring themes that we get in Fargo, things that are hallmark uh, Fargo that, that really stamps a show as a Fargo show, mm-hmm. and then recurring character types as well. So we can kind of weave in around those, but in our in, my, in the show notes here uh, for us, our, our um, outline, I've got all that in there. So we can kind of weave in and around it because um, it's not, yeah, unless you do an episode by episode, it, it can get a little... Um, uh, a little dicey to cover the show. Right. But uh, before we get into even that stuff, I'm just super curious. What do you think of this style of storytelling? The way that the show is being edited, the way that mm. scenes are overlapping and the sort of flashbacky stuff and, and the supernatural. Like, what are your thoughts from a, a production standpoint? Like, how is this hitting you? Is this... Um, uh, yeah, I'm just curious. To me, it feels very much like a season of The White Lotus. Interesting. It's the same vibe. It's a little darker and less okay. funny. <laughs> but other than that, like I think that the way that the scenes are edited, the way season that, two White Lotus. Yeah, or even season I, one. Even season one. Yeah, I think okay. I think it's the same vibe of here is a bunch of complex people, follow them, see how their stories inter- interact mm-hmm. with each other, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes somebody will monologue for a little bit, which is kind of, I don't know. It's it's kind of strange, but also, again, I'm watching Doctor Who lately, and there's like a ton of like grandstanding monologue, and that's just a thing. And mm-hmm. so it didn't rub me the wrong way or anything. But, uh, you know, when you have the mother-in-law, I can never remember her name, Lorraine, uh, yep. When you have Lorraine Jennifer Jason Lee doing her monologue about debt and how mm-hmm. we're actually saviors of people who are in debt. Meanwhile, oh, that was so great, wasn't it? It was great because it was overlaid, of course, over Indira having her struggles with medical bills. Right, right. And she could be in the pocket of of um, of Lorraine eventually right right and maybe this is even one of Lorraine's subcontractors who's, yeah it could be her in the parking lot it could be and it's it's amazing because you know Lorraine is talking about oh well they just want a pair of shoes they've just you know just basically blaming it on consumerism meanwhile she's like I had a medical emergency and mm-hmm. now I can't pay this debt which is a really common thing in America right and it's it's just so different in the worldview mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's <laughs> I love the the uh, I know I'm getting off track here, but I love the. No, journalist. I think we're we're pretty loose on this conversation. Yeah. So I love the we'll journalist going. Are you are you saying that you made 1.6 billion dollars with compassion? Like <laughs> that's that's not really a thing, buddy. And this is where I think Noah Hawley is really showing his strengths as a, a writer and a television showrunner. Is is that he can layer in this kind of social commentary, and it is entirely natural. 
and it is entirely within the frame of the story. Another show or a writer might have dropped that line with the reporter and it would have smacked as some sort of, oh yeah, you know, agenda item, right? That mm-hmm. the show is trying to say. When Holly's doing it, he's it it never feels to me that he is doing a um he's actually saying something specific, he's asking a question or he's holding up a mirror. He's pointing out a circumstance that we're dealing with in our our modern culture. And he's not passing a value judgment on it necessarily, but he puts it there right in your lap, right where you cannot ignore it. And it challenges you to make some questions, you know, to, to, to ask yourself some questions about, oh, do I have feelings about this? Do I have thoughts about this? Right. Yeah, I, I think that the difference is the characters have an agenda, but the show does not have an agenda. Mm, right. That's a really that's very cool. Yeah. I like that. And and that's why I think it's so similar to White Lotus, where you'll have the White Lotus where you have, you know, the wealthy generational thing. And he's not taking a stance on that. He's just showing how three different generations of men treat women and, and mm-hmm. treat, you know, their, their attitudes, their patriarchal mm-hmm. privileges. Uh, right. You know, you have sex workers in that show and you have the hotel manager trying to get them out. You have the the sex workers just trying to like live and and they even the then, sex workers aren't wholly good people. Right. Like one of them right. just scam somebody out of money. And it's it's uh, everything's very nuanced. And I don't think Mike White has ever made, like you said, made a judgment on any of these people. Maybe the, uh, the people on the yacht he made a judgment on. But, right. uh, that's that's basically it. And I think Noah Hawley, that's why it says White Lotus to me is it's it's very like it's a character study. It's not it's not a an after school special where you're learning like. Right. There's a moral lesson. The good thing, to grow the on. Thing. It's yeah. funny, though, because in that interview, he said, oh, I don't want to label things. I don't want to put Republican or Democrat or anything. I'm like, Lorraine screams Republican. Like mm-hmm. if you. If you like, Tillman. just because you don't use the word doesn't mean we don't know, right? <laughs> right. Like right. you have the whole uh, "I voted for you twice" joke, and well, that's not serious. We're taking our country. Like it's if you know a scintilla about American politics, you know that this is a Republican family, right? Right. And or or and so, they're I think they're apolitical, and they would just use Republicans to um, to as a means to an ends in in many ways. But I anyway, don't know. I. I think Lorraine, I think that could be true about Wayne, uh, mm-hmm. but I think Lorraine believes that she is a savior of people in debt. Mm-hmm. You know, she believes that like, I'm just like, look at the way she talks to the cops, right? Well, you're, you're meant to keep things out. You're the gatekeepers of here. You have no function in here. <laughs> I do think that she. brutal monologue. I mean, such a takedown. She's, she's trying to take down Olmstead. And put her in her place uh, because Olmstead's not. She sees she she recognizes the intelligence and the cunning that Olmstead has. Right. And this is a recurring character, the do-gooder cop, and we can talk right. about that later. Yeah, there's one cop in this town. We learned right. <laughs> uh, who's who's just on every case. Um, but I mean, again, social commentary, and he's not passing judgment. He's but he's make he's so clearly making a statement there. So I, yeah. anyway, you, I interrupted your thought. Please, Carrie. Just I, I, that's just all I mean is I, I think that she is a true believer in mm-hmm. all this stuff. Right. I, I think Wayne is. I don't think Wayne's had an original thought in his entire life. You know, that's just who he is. Mm-hmm. He's just a doormat, and it's it's interesting because it's it really shows you like the damage that you can do by being a nobody, the mm-hmm. damage that you can do by being incredibly passive. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's really interesting. I really like this comp too to the White Lotus and into Mike White. I, I hadn't pulled that one before. So, I, and I like this idea that these are complex, nuanced characters, and we're winding them up and then letting them go, and, yeah. and seeing what happens. The one of the archetypes that we see in Fargo and with Cohen and and with Noah Hawley and when he's playing in the Fargo space is are, are a couple of them. There's the innocent victim. And then there's the corrupted everyman, and the in this episode in this season he's playing with that a little bit, and he's taking the innocent victim and saying, "Well, what if the innocent victim isn't innocent and isn't a victim? 
mm-hmm. because she's in the role of the innocent victim. So in the original right. movie, there's a kidnapping. It's the the original movie. He uses the original movie as a template for season five in a lot of ways in the first episode. And so when I was watching episode one, I was like, oh, dang, this is the movie. And then, like you said, Mm -hmm. it goes in all these different directions that I was not expecting. So he takes the innocent victim archetype and he turns it on its head with Juno uh, Temple. And he takes the uh, corrupted everyman, which is uh, Wayne, the husband, and, and makes him the hapless innocent mm-hmm. uh, because that's the position we would have normally seen the the corrupted everyman and the the corrupted everyman is the character that you know maybe they make a mistake or they're trying to get over on one on the system and then it gets them too far down the road and they they have to increasingly make wilder and wilder choices to try to maintain a veneer of respectability or of innocence to avoid law enforcement. And so he takes those and he, and he turns those upside down. Um, and um, it's, I think it's a really fascinating thing because Wayne being so innocent, being so clueless that he's actually causing problems by being so clueless. Right. Right. I wanted to ask you quickly about uh, Jennifer Jason Lee as Lorraine Lyon. Have you, do you have much uh, screen experience with Jennifer Jason Lee? No, I don't. She reminded me of Elizabeth Shue. Mm-hmm. That was the vibe I got. Like if you okay. had um, Madeline from The Boys, it was right. the same like overall vibe. Okay. Interesting. What, what about her? Is it, I, I'm assuming based on your question that you have a lot of screen experience with her. She's been around a long time. She did a lot of stuff in the in the 80s that you know were were good, uh, big not good, but you know uh, bigger titles. She has a really long career. I'm just looking at her filmography right now. It's it's pretty intense. And what's interesting is is that I haven't seen her on screen myself in a number of years. So to see her on screen was like, oh, wow. And it was a bit of a, uh, I don't want to say shock, but it was like, oh, wait, wait, who is this person? Why is this going on? But then she's inhabiting this role so well that I can't see past the role. I can't see the actress, which is great. Like that's a, it's a big compliment because she's just uh, owning the Lorraine Lyon character from, you know, uh, tip to toe. What do you think about her accent, though? Because that's the only thing that feels mm. off to me. Mm-hmm. And that sort of uh, high—it's—it's it's the yeah. closest thing that we would have to a um, like a, a in British accents. You know, we have a lot of different ones that denote mm-hmm. class, like a posh and accent. You're saying, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So she's it's, got this weird American posh accent. Yeah, it's. I've never heard someone in the real world talk like that. Mm-hmm. Never in my life. I don't know if anyone does, but maybe well, they do. I don't know. And maybe this is how like rich people in Minnesota sound. And I've never been to Minnesota. So uh, I'm I'm a dirty coastal elite. But right. um, I think it I think what it does, though, is it, it marks her while everyone else has that upper Midwest, you know, uh, atypical Minnesota twang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she Dorothy definitely has it sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. And that's an important point. That's an important point, I think. Um, but I think it, it marks her as different. And I think she's playing it really to that extreme to to let us know that she is that uh, Lorraine Lyon is not of and is far above uh, yeah. everyone else. I, I guess if I'm going to defend the accent, this character is putting on the accent too, right? Like exactly. that's a that's a thing that this exactly. person does to say I am better than you. Exactly, I am separate from you. We are not mm-hmm. the same thing. So yeah. One of the other major character types is the uh, powerful crime syndicate. Mm-hmm. It, that's sort of a general and a specific character type. Um, so there's always some sort of underworld figures in a Fargo show. And be they under the guise of a greedy corporation or of um, uh, other political power centers or out, out, right, and out, uh, mob syndicate style. Uh, be they, you know, um, 
alcohol and gambling in the 40s or trucking in the, you know, and transport in the, I guess that would be the 80s, I think is when that season took place. There's always some sort of criminal element. There's some sort of rapacious, mm-hmm. hungry, capitalist hungry, um, uh, ruthless force willing to do whatever and clean up whatever mess gets made typically by the innocent or not typically by the corrupted everyman. The corrupted everyman stumbles into something and the criminal syndicate then has to, you know, get involved in, in some way, right. shape or form. So Lorraine Lyon is the the powerful crime syndicate. And then she has our legal enablers um, in this case with uh, Danish Graves. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I still, I can't yeah. quite put my finger on his character. I don't know. Dave Foley is the actor who, who plays him. I don't know if mm-hmm. you're familiar at all. I, I'm not. And I, I, I want to ask you, why do we have two characters with eye patches within the first like <laughs> exactly. two episodes of this exactly. show? <laughs> he's this is <laughs> he's lot. playing with it. Although I, I will say I really enjoyed the joke of the the guy with the eye patch in the gun shop wearing an eye patch, and they're like, "Oh, I love your eye patch." Oh no, that was a hunting accident. Like, <laughs> that was that was a really good quick yes, joke. Exactly. Who was it? Um, who was the? Was it a Greek god? Um, no, no, no. It was a Norse god. It was Odin. Odin, right? Yeah. O- Odin gave up his eye for wisdom. Yes, if I believe that the, if the myth is right. Yeah, for I I don't remember what kind of wisdom. I think it was like all the knowledge in the world or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was something crazy. Mm-hmm. So the the idea that there that this character made some sort of sacrifice. Now with the pirate gun shop seller, I don't think we're going to see him again. So I don't know if that was just some of the weird uh, Midwestern humor that he was rolling out. But I think with uh, Graves, I think it's definitely pointing to something about him uh, and and his character. Yeah, And I doubt we'll ever get an answer to it either. It's just going to be what is. Yeah, maybe. Can I ask you the FBI agents that are popping up? Are they like a recurring thing in this series? No, they okay. are. They they are. There's always law enforcement, and the law enforcement uh, relative to the crime syndicate. And typically, what happens is the crime syndicate. It 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 varies from 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 season to season. So there's a crime syndicate. There's the good-natured and competent police officer, but there is also then the unstoppable evil, uh, or you know, there, there's an evil character that that takes on different guises, uh-huh. and different people label that that archetype um, a little bit differently. I don't know if you ever saw No Country for Old Men ever. No. Oh boy. Uh, so there's a character in there uh, by the name of Anton Chigurh. Mm-hmm. There is obviously in Raising Arizona, which we watched for one of our Second Breakfast Patreon exclusive podcasts. Um, there is, uh, the motorcycle writer, I'm blanking on his name. He has a name too, but like, that's one of the early variations of this character. So, um, Lauren Malvo is played by Billy Bob Thornton in season one. And he's this, I, I, I can't say anything, but there's, there's always this unstoppable evil force. And oftentimes mm-hmm. the unstoppable evil force is utilized by the crime syndicate, Mm-hmm. to to well, clean something we certainly up. certainly see or, that here, right? Yes, or or to retrieve something or to do something. And then typically the the corrupted everyman gets intertwined or entangled up with the unstoppable evil uh, while trying to maneuver around the crime syndicate. And so, right. and, but then in, in opposition to the unstoppable evil, there's always the competent police officer who's good-natured and seems very at ease in the world. They have a family, they're, um, they're kind people, they're dedicated to their job. Oftentimes they have a spouse who is very far removed from the horrors and the evils that the police officer encounters and sees. And so we get this great counterpart where the gosh golly chucks police officer is out doing their job and then they run into really horrific, unspeakable violent, gory situations, and they absorb that and they hold that back from the their spouse typically is the counterpoint for them, 
who is just, you know, the average person living their average life, never understanding the depths of evil and depravity that are going on in the world. So that's typically a, a pantheon. Having the outside FBI agents in this season is a big departure. And I was actually really surprised to see them. And I'm quite, kind of not sure how yet to relate to them. They seem very men in black, you know, sort of a Will yeah, Smith and yeah. um, what's his name? Um, I know you're and, talking about, yeah. Yeah. And uh, they seem weird in some way. They're like, they're kind of, they're kind of bro but they're not. Uh, they're kind of, um, um, they're, they're working on some sort of case, but we're really not sure. Yeah. So they are an X factor in terms of the Fargo, the typical Fargo players uh, that we see. So yeah, I don't know how to, how to advise you to, to relate to them yet. That's interesting because they felt like recurring characters that I didn't know. Like that interesting. was, okay. that was the thing where I was like, Oh, I might be missing something here. Maybe they're a through line, right? Yeah. This, it's yeah. the same FBI agents going through and through. There yeah. have been, th- it, this is explicitly stated as all happening in the same world. So it's not like different narrative worlds. These are supposed to be all in the same earth in the same timeline. And there are, is some connect vague connectivity in a couple of seasons and people have been looking for that and wondering that, but I don't think Holly is really, I don't think that's where his interest is in creating an integrated IP. Right. I think he's, he's just playing with, with things and, and it, it's convenient that they're all set in the same world. I don't think he's going to right. make an overall narrative structure out of these things. So, right. So I'm curious what you think about this supernatural element overall in the show, because it is a hallmark of all Fargo's to have some WTF moment. And I'll say that in this season to get that reveal in episode three was a shock. It really shocked uh, uh, everyone <laughs> who's watching mm-hmm. the show. There are people who know the franchise. They're like, what? what? What do you mean? Like, this is supposed to be at the end in like episode eight or something. So I'm, I'm curious as to what your, uh, I think it's, I think it's done something nice for your vibe, but I'm curious to what you think intellectually for the story. Yeah. You know, it, at first I was a little shocked because it felt like a very traditional reality based show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, what a weird way to introduce it with like the, the, sin, <laughs> the eating. sin eater. Yeah, that's like a wild thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see the Wikipedia stats for sin eater entry page. Like it must have spiked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's um, – I, I think that at first it kind of was like, I don't know if it needs this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, on in retrospect, like other than the weird backstory – it's not doesn't change the story that much other than this guy's stronger than a lot of other people. Right. Mm-hmm. He's like harder to kill. We we don't know if he's impossible to kill, but he's at least harder to kill. Right. And he has some sort of uh uh inertia propelling yeah, him forward. It's uh what's the elf thing? Serial longevity. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, and and this idea of debt and balance, right? If I'm gonna yeah. eat your sin. If I'm going to do something bad for you, you owe me pain and suffering, right? Right. Um, right. And so there's the that that's one of the questions that the show is is dealing with in this season overall. This is not a, a necessarily a theme from prior seasons, but in this season season about debts mm-hmm. and your obligation to debt, and you know what you're owed and how you pay it back. As Lion is a debt collector, you know, in the debt collection uh, business, right. And with Old Munch and Tillman, it's it's about the debt that you're you know that you mm-hmm. owe me, and so, and also this, I think in Munch's head he's like, well, I already like to get this way, I already damned myself, I mm-hmm, already condemned yeah. myself. Why not make money on doing the dirty work? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think this intertwines then with another ongoing theme with that's tied in specifically to the unstoppable evil character type, which is the nature of evil in society. What is evil and and how does it come about? How does it operate? And how do innocents or, you know, people who, who are not seeking out evil react to it, 
deal with it, get caught up by it. The, <laughs> the, I'm sorry, the kid with the air horn in the show in the shop when he's, he pops up and mm-hmm. blasts the air horn at him. He just even much as even turn, he just sort of points the rifle and and blows the guy away. Right. So there's always this carnage that's left in the wake of the unstoppable evil. And so how do we as a society process that? How do we deal with that? Right. And I think by wrapping it in a supernatural in this episode, I think it it somehow heightens the storytelling element and it gives us a, a, a new entry or a different way of thinking it uh, about it. Um, he He uses the supernatural to varying degrees in different seasons. In some, it's it's uh, very apparent, and in others, it's just sort of a WTF moment at, at some point in the show. So uh, I think that in this show, I think it really does. I think he does really use it to to um, give us a, a, a framework for us questioning the nature of evil and and right. what is evil in our society. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's. It's interesting. I, I kind of want to segue. I know you wanted you said off air that you wanted to talk more about Roy, about which we have Sarah. to. Yeah, we absolutely have to. I, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit in relation yeah, go. to this because he he has this whole idea of right and wrong being a separate thing from legal and illegal. And that's mm. something that Noah Hawley talked about in that interview that you sent me. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's he's basically saying it's a problem when individuals start to say my internal sense of morality mm-hmm. is stronger than the rule of law. Right. And uh, he he actually said something I really disagreed with at one point, which was mm-hmm. he said, our rule of law is the best because it's emotionless. And I was like, no, that's not <laughs> true. Um, first of all, just to back up, he mentioned in it, he's like, oh, you know, my mother was a, a very leading feminist and I, I've always tried to internalize that. Um, something that I've learned in, in a lot of my studies of feminism is that it is patriarchy that demonizes emotion is Mm. that logic is seen as masculine and emotion is seen as feminine. And that's why people assume that logic is better than emotion inherently. Interesting. And, And I don't think that's true. I mean, look at, look at the way our laws are. I mean, it's a crime to desecrate a corpse. The only harm you have to anybody from desecrating a corpse is emotional. And that's Mm -hmm. still a crime because we feel it's wrong. Mm, And we shouldn't say that shouldn't be a crime because it's only emotion based. Right. Of course it should be a crime. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's that's I I really don't agree with this whole like logic is inherently better than emotion. I think that both are important to an understanding of the world. Right. And, and and it's they're both present in the legal system. Uh, there, it's just whether we admit to it or not. Right, <laughs> right, right. And it's, and like, look at the way that courts rule on things. It's mm-hmm. a, a lot of the times it's the judge saying, "I know that this person should win because I feel that they should win. I'm going to carve out an exception to the law so that they will win." You know, like that's that's how a lot of law is made. Right. Is I feel like this is the right thing to do. That's how a common law system works because it's not a code system, right? And right. a lot of a lot of legislation happens based on emotion. I mean, like, sure, and, and yeah. for better or worse, right? The Iraq War started largely in the emotion from nine eleven. I can uh, think of a, a lot of uh, even more uh, seemingly mundane things: laws around school buses, the you know, you know, the Gertie Gates and the flashing signs and that kind of stuff. Right. Why are those illegal? It's because somebody had an emotional reaction to having a, a uh, you know, a, somebody being a, a child being a victim of somebody being careless around a school bus. Mm-hmm. That was an emotion that was based out of that was a decision based out of emotion. Right? right. The impetus came from from an emotional reaction to something happening in the world. Right. So, yeah, anyway, that's my that was my one beef with Noah Hawley. I was like, I think you're dead wrong on that, man. Like, okay. it's not that's not first of all, it's not an accurate description of the, of the legal system, but it's also, it, I think, inherently patriarchal, a patriarchal mm-hmm. view it's of, interesting. Of, of the world. Well, um, emotion is secondary because emotion is important. That's that's what makes us human. Right. And and here we have John Hamm, 
who is a great uh, uh, embodiment of that whole complex dynamic. Exactly. That's where I was going with all this. Yeah, Clearly there's emotion going on under the surface. And yet on the outer shell of him is a cold, emotionless, logical man. Mm -hmm. But yet why is he pursuing this vengeance, uh, this style of vengeance against Dorothy to bring her back in the debt that's paid and, and and the debt has accrued so much that it cannot be paid back uh, and now in, in you know money or in some other terms but now there's mm-hmm. just a whole other level of justice that has to be executed um, but, but I think you pointed something very important pointed out something very important there which is he is an emotional man under the disguise yes. of mm-hmm. logic because he feels that that's the the masculine portrayal he needs to put out there interesting yes he's wearing the mask of logic and law he's you know he's sheriff but but he doesn't follow the laws right he and he abuses the law is him is what he feels right right right. (laughs) and he abuses his power to go after his ex because she hurt him emotionally Mm -hmm. emotionally it's all about emotion it really is all about emotion and i think that noah hawley gets that implicitly and subconsciously and mm-hmm. he like doesn't understand that that's what's happening here in in, <laughs> in I, I i think that i love it i love it he's the study of patriarchy that we need to do here mm-hmm. is that he is that he understands how this stuff works but he can't name it the right way mm, interesting but yet it's coming out in the character and in the writing right. and in the dialogue right and even in the setup with him um in opposition to dot and what's upending his patriarchy? A very diminutive woman who is mm-hmm. putting a on a tiger when a man a man doesn't say that a tiger is a tiger. Um, that she is able to not only subvert and overpower him and all of the agents that he is sending out. And that's one of the other main character recurring character types is the hapless criminal. So in the beginning of episode one, when you see the two characters rolling down the road, that's straight out of the Fargo movie um, in, in some way, some of those characters. And so expecting Mm -hmm. that, but then it really diverges, but she's with a bag of ice. She's able to take out one of them, right? Completely. And when Gator and his crew show up, She's able to fend them off. It costs her something. Right. But but so, so every agent that is being sent, and Old Munch is super powerful. So every agent that is being sent at Juno Temple at, at Dorothy, she's, she's defeating them and ultimately uh, subverting uh, Tillman's uh, patriarchal authority, his authority. What do you make of... Tillman being such a contemporary character and a lot of other Fargo shows, there's enough time and distance removal that even though the commentary is there, the relevance is not as poignant where mm-hmm. with Tillman, right? That's just take. And even the way that the show starts in, in episode one with the school board fight, which is how dot gets caught in a way, you know, how she comes up on the radar. But these are very contemporary things. Um, and how are you feeling about Tillman? Is it too on the nose? Is it uh, is it working for you? No, I think it really works. I you know I thought he was going to be this kind of like uh, very tropey character, uh-huh. and then he's in the diner, and he tosses water into the 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 face of the wife beater, yeah, and of uh, this abusive man. And I'm like, that's now an interesting character, like. I'm kind of rooting for him there, right? Right. But then right. he comes right back around and goes, "Now service your husband with your mouth." <laughs> and and again, so we're back to emotion, right? Is right. Is okay. Well, now now tend his wounds both physical and emotional. Mm. That's an emotional thing. So I I think again, we're looking at the way that emotion permeates all of these things. And right. sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a bad way. I think he deviates Tillman enough too with the nipple rings and the sex chest, you know, box <laughs> um, that it um, it takes him. It adds an, a different dimensionality because if he was just a constitutional sheriff, what have you, and he's this flat character, I think it would be 
unpalatable. But I think mm-hmm. by giving him this range and then giving him the gun running and supplying the militia stuff reluctantly, like he's not wanting to do this very aggressively. Right. He's following a script here. Mm-hmm. He's following the patriarchal script for masculinity. Dot, to protect herself, is following mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, the uh, the feminine script for right. uh, grief and for fear and for you know when you're when you're in trouble, patriarchy gives you these scripts that you can fall back on, and that's mm. what we're seeing here. Dot becomes this servile housewife mm-hmm. who is like, oh, I'll bring my blue salad, and that's the mask she wears. That's mm-hmm. the script that she wears to protect herself. And well, we see that even though that protects her in the short term, eventually it comes home to roost, right? Like this will not protect you forever. It's a short term Band-Aid. And that's right. why these things are so damaging. And she has to use the tools of patriarchy to defend herself from the patriarchy. When they go to the gun store, what's more an expression of male uh, – of masculinity in American culture than some BFGs, right? Yeah. With uh, like, you know, I'll take the heckler and I'll take the the, the pistol this and, and yeah. I love her shopping list. Like, you know, mm-hmm. mac, you know um, mac and cheese shells. Shells, yep. nine millimeter. You know, like there's, it's it's a really subtle dig right. at, at that at that blending of she mm-hmm. has to use patriarchal weapons and tools to defend herself from the the patriarchy. Yeah, there's even a lot of great world building with her visit to the gun store where she goes there and she's like, "Is that twelve gauge?" Yeah, and like she knows that right away. Sure, that's like all right, maybe she has a little bit of gun knowledge. Then she has like every detail down on this other yeah. gun. And so <laughs> exactly. you understand right away that this is not her first rodeo. And that stuff. really highlights the um, accent that she's putting on. It's a put right. on, right? There's there's right. more to this woman than than meets the eye. Right. So what do you think really quick? Uh, we should start to wrap it up, but I wanted to touch quickly on Gator Tillman. Do you think there's a redemptive arc in for him? Or I think Steve Harrington. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, he, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, Do you recognize the actor? From, yeah. That's uh, why I called him Steve Harrington. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, right. Of yeah. course. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He, uh, he's really good in this. I don't know. I think he, again, we talk about masks. I think he is putting on a big mask. I think he's a big wuss. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he does genuinely like he uses the mom as like a uh, <laughs> a, a mocking thing. But I think there's something underneath that where he's like, you abandoned me. And mm. I think that's his stepmom, right? That's not his. We don't know. The, the question's been posed okay. because we okay. see three wives on the wall of Tillman's right, right. You know, previous marriages. And we don't know Gator's right. uh, matrilineal uh, lineage. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Overall, you can see that in some way, Dot had a or Nadine had a maternal yes. role in his life, and he feels very vulnerable because he lost that. Mm-hmm. And and even the way that she looks at him, like looks at him up and down, like oh my god, it's you. <laughs> when she first sees him, all the acting, the, all the, the world the building is really push. subtle and great. <laughs> yeah, she's like, you know better, <laughs> gives it right, right, off. <laughs> goes back into mom mode all of a sudden. <laughs> it's so good. So good. But, but even all right, sorry, I, I keep going on these things. But even yeah. the way that Dot talks to her own daughter feels like a mask. Mm. It feels like mm. a put on. Mm-hmm. She's very like, okay, and now we'll go have a vegetable right. medley. And and it's it's very it feels disingenuous almost. Like I know mm. she's trying to be a good mom, but she's very uh I don't know, it almost feels like an act for her. It takes me back to the Ursula K. Le Guin books that we've been reading on our Book Nook series with the Tehanu book and the storyline of a, a what is a very powerful woman who then chooses to live a normal, and I'm not saying this pejoratively, but a mundane life, like a, a life that is not about saving the world and going off on adventures and these kinds of things, but just living a, a day-to-day existence. And so she clearly has had some incredible experiences and has developed a whole bunch of knowledge, and yet she's choosing to live a quiet life. Right. And then, like you said, that quiet life, you know, that everything that she's done before is not going to let her rest, right? They, they, they've come for her. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think a great show. I, I have one more thing to say about this show. Mm, okay. I'd like to introduce a new test in addition to the shippy test. Uh-huh. It's called the Pukila test. 
Okay. <laughs> which is, uh, would Marilyn R. Pukila enjoy this show based on the level of gore? No, she would not. And the gauge for this test is, is it more or less violent than the Rings of Power? Yeah. And it's violent for violence sake. Yes. These violent delights have violent ends. Um, it, yeah, I think, but, but the storyline, I think she would love the storyline. I just, I think so too, the, but it's, it is very violent and I know she yeah. does not care for that. So the Pukila test, it fails the Pukila test. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is awesome. Uh, okay, cool. Well, there's so much more that we could be talking about. I, I, there's something that we, we should definitely throw into the next uh, podcast, which is the whole thing of this is a true story. Yeah, uh, that is a that is a very strong recurrent element in the Fargo thing, and and it sets up I think the way that Holly's narrative structures work by challenging your sense of what is true. And there's a whole element of this show too about post truth and yeah. facts and the worlds that we we live in um, and that we construct for ourselves. But I think we have to save that for another time. Yeah, I'm super excited just talking about it with you for this last while has got my excitement for the show even higher. Uh, I can't wait to uh, see how the rest of the season goes. Yeah, it's super interesting. Thanks for recommending it because I wasn't even going to check it out. So it's very cool. It's very cool indeed. All right. Well, let's do a quick uh, wrap up uh, for our affiliate podcasts. uh, Alicia has been covering the show the another um Hugh Howey adaptation called Beacon 23 it's on the MGM plus streaming platform her and Luke have been are doing uh bundled episode coverage of it and she's going to have some more uh coverage of Dune her and Luke are going to do some more Dune coverage as we have a March 1st date for that movie and then she is going to be on with Jean and I we're going to do some MCU coverage we're going to talk about Spider-Verse we're going to talk about the what if season two, and those are going to be out in December. We don't have dates for those yet because we're juggling travel and holiday schedules, but we're definitely uh, going to be recording uh, those episodes before the end of the month. So keep your ears out. Cool. Over on Properly Howard, they finished up their first season of uh, remake films. Well, not their first season, but a, a season of covering a bunch of remake films. They're currently covering Severance. Uh, season one, and we have a special feed set up for that because the moment that season two starts, all four of us are going to be covering that show as a uh, collective. And uh, we're looking forward to that. We're just waiting for a date for season two, but you can get all your season one podcasts. They're they're there. Uh, They drop every Friday. And um, I think we we just had them on too for our Star Wars Film Festival for the... uh, 1978 Star Wars holiday special. John, I know that's 90 minutes of your life that you probably regret. You know, I I do regret it because it was the most fun podcast I've ever recorded. (laughs) It was an amazing, you know, J.R. Tolkien wrote in his first letter, which I have to get back to my Shireside chats, but um, in my first Shireside chat, I talked about his, his letter to Edith, where he says, we had a great conversation about a bad paper. And I'm like, we had a great conversation about a terrible movie. Perfect. It's not even a movie. It's a tele- it, it was a television variety show. It's whatever you want it to be. It's, <laughs> it's a drug trip. It's a, it's, it's a honestly, it's all on YouTube. So you can just watch it now. You don't have to spend any yeah. money. It's yeah. the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And it's hilarious. And it's, it's unintentionally funny the whole yeah. time. You've got some uh, December stuff happening too. You and Marilyn are cooking up some stuff. What do you got there? And Alicia too as well, right? Yeah. So uh, Marilyn and I are reading Hogfather by Terry Pratchett, which is kind of a Christmas novel. It's about Hogswatch, which is the Discworld version of Christmas. And uh, the premise is, if you haven't read it, we're going to talk about the TV movie too, so you can just cheat and watch the movie. Um, If you haven't read it, it's uh, somebody sets out to kill Santa Claus and the essence of death does Christmas in his absence. Okay. And it's, it's like a hilarious book. I'm like halfway through it right now. It's hilarious. I can't wait to talk about it with Marilyn. Definitely, definitely check it out. I'll check out the Um, TV movie. I'm going to put that up on my board. Sounds good. Sounds good. And uh, Alicia and I are going to be talking with a special guest from England about the Doctor Who 60th anniversary specials with David Tennant returning. Okay. They've been How's so fun. The yeah. second one was a lot better than the first, actually. I meant to okay. tell you that. The first one was very, I watched it. It was very 
straight who. It was very Whovian. Yeah, it's it was that was the one that they said made they made it very kid friendly. The second uh-huh. one is a lot darker and a lot. Okay, cool. It, it's really cool. It's really good. Uh, really looking forward to tomorrow, the day after we record this, the third one comes out. So that's the last one we'll be talking about. But that'll be out okay. later in the month. Great. And then we've got Second Breakfast coming up. That's where we do our top 10. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you can uh, go on to the Patreon site. There's a link for our first ever community server survey. We're going to um, collect uh, everyone's top 10 um, picks for 2023 television shows. And then we're going to process them a little bit and come up with a big community ranking. But then, John, you and I are going to be doing our top 10s, and we're going to record that and have that podcast out on the 25th, a little present to unwrap for everyone. And that, typically, Second Breakfast is an exclusive benefit, but we make this one episode available to everyone. We put it out on the public feed. So we have a Christmas episode every year that everybody gets. That's right. Patrons get it a little early anyway. but Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Speaking of patrons, we should probably thank our Loremaster patrons. Absolutely. Would you like to do the honors? Absolutely. It's Martian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E., David W., Brian P., Nick W., SC, Peter O.H., Bettina W., Adam S., Nancy M., Lavinia T., Duve 71, Brian 8063, Frederick H., Sarah L., Gareth C., Eric F., Matthew M., Sarah M., DJ Miwa, Andra B., Kwang Yu, Laura G, Dead Eye Jedi Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub Zero, Aaron K, and Adrian, who will always be last. Thank you all so very much for your continued patronage. Uh, it helps keep the wheels turning over here at Lorehound Central and helps us help our co-hosts and pay for all the bits and, and bloops and the things that we need to do. We really appreciate you guys all so very much. And to everyone who listens to us, Thank you for um, hanging out and um, having a good time with us. I yeah. am looking forward to second breakfast and our top 10 end of year stuff. So me too. Me too. I put my list together and I'm excited to share it. Excellent. We're not telling each other. We're keeping it a secret. We're it's going true. To we really are. It on the podcast. All right, John, thanks for hopping on with me. I think this, I'm really excited about Fargo and I'm glad that you're into it. So yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to talking about a wrap up with you. Good stuff. See you next time. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening.